spiritual involution. That's our podcast. You said that pretty good. All right, we're live. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Podcast number six. Can that be? It can be. Really, number six. It's number six. Seis. Seis. So, would you consider yourself bilingual now? Um. Uh, I would. I'm not sure people who speak the other language I think I speak would say that I speak it. <laughs> I, <laughs> do I you have, dream it? Because that's I, when they I say actually, you're really I do bilingual, have, right? I do have dreams in Spanish. Oh. Um, not all the time, but I do sometimes. And Is Mauricio in your Spanish dreams? Are they like sexy Spanish no, dreams? No. Oh. No. <laughs> no, not yet. But I do have... I do have um, I do have the ability to have my needs met, so I can I can get something to eat and I can stay warm and find lodging in Spanish. However, I don't think I would enter into business contracts in Spanish. That would be unwise, and I should not go to the doctor and speak only in Spanish because that would be unwise too. So <laughs> you might get the wrong leg amputated or something. Possibly, yes. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to say sharpie in Spanish. <laughs> All right. Well, that was random. Yeah, it was random. <laughs> oh, because I said seis. Yeah, you for said seis. That's just what popped in my head. Because uh, your husband is is Mexican. He yes. Lived, he grew up in Guadalajara. Yes. And so you took it upon yourself to really try to learn the language. Yes. I always think you do a good job, but at my level is like maybe a two-year-old. Yeah. Maybe not even a two-year-old. Uh, maybe a. I can, I can fool <laughs> non-native Spanish speakers, but native Spanish speakers know right away that I they, they know the limit of my language. Right. I've noticed, though, in your sermons, sometimes you bring in um, learning a second language as opening up a spiritual door and into noticing how certain words are in English and then they don't apply to Spanish yes. and that people think differently in different cultures. So. My next-door neighbors, um, they're three children, and they are ages eight, six, and four. And all three of them are bilingual. And the oldest, the eight-year-old, told me that when you speak another language, you have a second soul. Mm. Because uh, each language processes information distinctly and thinks differently. So if you, if you can speak another language, you actually think differently. But that's also true if in your native language. For us, let's say in English, um, if we change the way we speak, we actually will change the way we think so we could even change the way we speak in English, and that could alter the way we think in English. Yeah, I'm There's just actually studies starting on to this. notice that. There's studies on this. Do you have an example of... Uh, yeah, um, at the moment, uh, uh, she is a PhD from Harvard, and her name is escaping me at the moment. Um, she, did, she did studies showing that that the way we process information is directly related to our language. For instance, um, when you read or write in, let's say, English or Spanish or Portuguese, for that instance, um, you, you go from left to right. And when you read and write in Hebrew or um, some other languages, you go right to left. Some Asian languages, you go top to bottom. And so when you place cards, let's say, like you have a card of a banana, like four pictures of a, a banana ripening, let's say. There's a picture of a green banana, a greenish-yellow banana, a yellow banana, and then a brown banana. People who speak English tend to process this card. They'll put green on the left 
and then to the right of that they'll put the green yellow and then to the right of that they'll put the yellow and to the right of that the brown right because that's we tend to think left to right but if somebody is let's say uh, speaks an Asian language they might put the green on the top and below it the yellow the green yellow and below that the yellow and below that the brown to get that mm -hmm. and um, the same is true with well anyway I could probably take a lot of time on that um, she goes into oh Boroditsky her name Lyra Boroditsky mm, that's a tough one Dr. Lyra L-E-R-A Boroditsky and it's a fascinating read it's an interesting read so my question is, let's say that is true, which it is obviously, some people read left to right, up and down. How does that actually affect cognitively how you feel or interact with a person? Because when I was thinking words, I was thinking more of how you say words. Like for example, somebody recently said, um, instead of saying, oh, I have to go to work today, they say, I get to go to work. Yes. And then that word changing have to get puts a whole new spin on valuing going to work. One makes it sound like it's a chore and a negative. Yes. And the other seems like, wow, I get to go to work today. I'm alive. I woke up this morning. Yes. So that's what I was thinking when, when we say words, but when you explain it like a lateral to sideways to up and down, I'm like, who, my who cares mind, about that? Yeah, like, okay, it's still a banana getting ripe. It's still going through a progression of ripeness. It's just orderly now in a different way. <laughs> and I realized as I started telling you that, that I was probably giving too much information um, because she shows other languages uh, that, that the way you speak causes you to look at things in a distinct way. So what you were just talking about is exactly what I was suggesting. If you change the way you speak, you change the way you think. And you were talking about instead of I have to go to work, I get to go to work. Mm -hmm. And that could possibly change the way you think about work. Now, this study by Lyra Boroditsky is describing, let's say, Spanish and English, which is something I know a little bit about. If I were to knock a glass off the table, in English you would say, David broke the glass. But in Spanish you don't say, David broke the glass. You say, the glass broke. Now because language um, requires a thinking process, a person who's a native Spanish speaker may not have even associated David with the breaking of the glass. So with English, sometimes there's more of a culpability. We look for... We look for the uh, the cause of the thing. Right, something. Did that, that make sense to you? Yeah, something so, to blame. So in Spanish, um, there's less blame. Let's say um, you, you you also say in English, uh, I have. You say I I am 53 years old. You say I am cold. You say I am tired. There's more of a personal relationship to it. In Spanish, you say I have 53 years. You say I have cold. You say I have tiredness. Hmm. And those those are distinct. They're not the same. Yeah, I see that. So what does this have to do with the average person listening? <laughs> I don't know. We went off on a tangent, but that's what we do. That is what we do. So, um, but interestingly, I was listening to um, James Clear. Yes. Which, you know, we've talked about Michael Singer and Bruce Lipton as yeah. my kind of author crushes of the yeah. spiritual world. Yeah. And I'd... I would dare say, <laughs> I would dare say, that David also says dare say, so I'm using his word. I dare say James Clear is kind of your crush. Oh, I totally have an author crush on James Clear. Yeah, he's Clear. your author crush. So, totally. <laughs> I was listening um, to his book on tape, The Atomic Habits. Yes. And 
he, in line with like talking about words and stuff, um, he had said a quote, I think I even highlighted it, um, by Carl Jung, um, who said, until you make unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And so when I'm thinking about how you're talking about words right now, like for so long saying, I have to go to work, it's like an unconscious way of talking or way of looking at the world. And as James Clear would say, and so Carl Jung, um, part of it is becoming aware of your language or of your belief systems or of your habits that have become part of your subconscious. So they've become this automatic system that you now need to somehow dig into and override. Mm. So I really liked that quote. Me too. And, um, what, what do you think about it? I mean, you've, you've probably read the book, right? I have a couple times. And what I think about that particular quote well, let me ask you, is there anything in your life that you think has been unconsciously driving you? Well, I think I ha- I'm just starting the book. And so, you know, he, I'm at like the first, I think the fourth chapter actually. And yeah. he said to kind of make a list of all your habits yeah. and then go through them and say, kind of judge them. Is this a, a good, a neutral or a bad habit? So is the outcome of the, the habit serving you in the long run? Whereas... Let's say you're trying to lose weight, but you have anxiety issues and you eat a donut. For that moment, the donut is helping your anxiety, right? But in the long run, that donut is going to not aid in your ideal body weight and you're probably going to feel bad about eating the donut later and then your anxiety is actually going to get worse. So that Mm. habit of maybe eating junk food to cause your anxiety to be less is a bad habit, right? So how how is that perhaps an unconscious... Well, I think... That's the tough part, because if it's unconscious, you don't really know yet. And part of what this quote is saying is what what drives us unconsciously, we tend to think is the way of the world and that it's fate. Oh, or I'm it's, powerless over donuts. Right. Or you're not even aware that you're using, you're not even aware that you're correlating the food with anxiety or, uh, you know, smoke, you know, anything really. Well, smoking's kind of an obvious bad habit nowadays, but maybe smaller things like, you know, not paying bills on time. That's probably one of mine is like, why don't I pay the bills on time? Like what habit? And I think maybe it's just, maybe I don't like seeing the money go away or maybe I just don't care enough. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. (laughs) That's what's kind of interesting is how do you like dig deep inside yourself to like discover what's yet to be discovered? Like what is in your subconscious? What is driving things that might be causing you to have some issues? I don't know. Is that what you want to pursue today? Well, it just kind of naturally led from the words because mm. it was on my mind. And then the words kind of made me think, huh, in and of itself, language is kind of an unconscious act that we have because not only English in and of itself, but maybe even the way your parents speak or the, you know the shade that they choose to see the world under glass half full glass empty kind of attitude that might then shape your perception yeah i'm I'm noticing something (laughs) in the modern vernacular the modern use of english in the united states particularly in the western u.s folks are moving away from i think and they're moving to i feel so they might say i feel like you're not listening to me as opposed to i think you're not listening to me and and I'm noticing um, 
that that there is somewhat of a surrender of personal responsibility oftentimes related to our feelings because we say we can't control our feelings and I'm not so sure that's true and I'm actually I'm not even sure I want to pursue this because that might be too too deep a rabbit hole well you mentioned that in a prior podcast actually and when I listened to it back I was confused by it Ah. because Part of me thinks that feeling is more correct than thinking almost. Maybe. Mm. Like if you're honest with it. Like if you feel something in your body tensing up, like my shoulders, that, that's like where I hold my tension. Yeah. And if I'm noticing that in a certain situation, I can then use my thoughts to maybe evaluate what my body is telling me. That's true. So the connection is there. Maybe we separate them too much. I mean, I don't know if when I say I feel something, if I'm making it seem taking if I'm not taking ownership of it like I feel I feel sad well then or I feel like you hurt me or I feel mad then you ask yourself what's causing that wow there's so um (laughs) one of the things I've noticed about um spirituality for me personally that for everything that I'm absolutely certain about there is actually the equal and opposite viewpoint, which which is just as valid. So um, I believe feelings have no power whatsoever. And at the same time, feelings point out to our deepest and most profound truth. So we have, I, I believe that humans have the ability to alter their feelings based upon their thinking. So mostly my feelings are a direct result of a particular pattern of thinking. At any given moment so sometimes I'm sad sometimes I'm blue sometimes I'm feeling hopeless and those are based upon maybe some habitual or um, neurotic thinking or unconscious thoughts that and at the same time thinking. on a spiritual level our feelings our true feelings maybe there's a superficial feeling and a, a deeper profound feeling but at the same time I know that my deeper feelings are the ones that actually, if I paid attention to, they would keep me out of trouble. And they would Mm -hmm. cause me to stop doing things that are harmful to myself and to others. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's surface level feelings, like, I don't feel like it. I'm feeling unhappy. I'm feeling kind of blue right now, as opposed to um, deep and profound um, undercurrents of depression or sorrow or loss. Maybe there's different levels of thinking, feeling. Right. Or maybe the... Maybe the origins can be different. Like if your thoughts are controlling your feelings, then there might be a perception from which your feelings are derived from that's not necessarily rooted in truth. But mm. if your feelings are coming from, let's say, when you put your feet into the earth or you, feel, or you see a sunset or you see a new baby being born, something that's driven by like maybe nature or... Now we're getting into the realm of what I would call spiritual. Right. But you can't deny that yeah, that feeling that comes from those moments. Um, I often get it when people like sing in unison in like big events. I do too. That feeling that's, I mean, that's an, a powerful feeling that's almost underneath all thought. I know. In, in that sense. I so, know. Yeah, and hence, they... hence lies the rub. Hence lies the rub. Both of those are true at exactly the same time. But So I do personally pay attention to use of my words so that I'm on purpose as much as possible except when I'm not to use the words think like I think something 
especially when I have to make business decisions because um, I, I don't want to make decisions that are in the long run driven by emotions, which tend to be um, unpredictable. Right. And at the same time, um, be, being being in the presence of softness and being moved and being touched by music, uh, by by people, by nature. I don't want to be closed off to that. I was closed off to that for a very long time. And I don't want to go back there either. Right. Well, this is this is guiding us somewhere that I wanted to go, actually. Tell, I, you, Oddly enough. You know what's... You, you like to pretend that this is free no, form, but I think you... you there is a free form. I didn't know I was going to start off with the fact that you speak Spanish fluently uh, or seis. maybe fluently. <laughs> but six. we have been trying to interact with people on Facebook mm. and um, we've got, we offered, you know, ideas. Tell us people what you want to talk about. Yeah. And Susan, um, your associate minister here. Yeah. Uh, who is an amazing woman herself, uh, mentioned that it is Women's History Month. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. She's amazing. 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 How many times can we say amazing? Amazing. She's amazing. <laughs> she is. Um, but she wanted to know who are the phenomenal women in your lives and what makes them or made them so. So uh-huh. I thought maybe we can go Because this that. is this is at the time of this recording, this is, what is it, National... Women's Month? Yeah. What, what do you call it? That's it. National. Women's History Month. Women's History Month. Either one works. So. But who, what I was thinking was when you were talking about feelings right there. Yeah. I mean, that is a divine feminine quality. The feelings, the intuitiveness with nature. Those are like kind of the qualities of the feminine. Whereas yes. the thoughts and logic are said to be the qualities of the masculine. And yet they both have to work together. You know, the yin and the yang to kind of form this perfect synergy correct so if we're gonna that's and what that's what made me think going into women's history month but let's focus a little bit on the divine feminine and maybe okay how you see that or if there are any women in your life that you feel embody that um i mean most people would think they're mother but i know you do love your mother and you have awesome stories that i've heard about her yeah is there anybody that comes to mind or does the idea of the the divine feminine conjure up anything in you? Why don't you, how about you? Why don't you start? <laughs> you always do this. No, you start. <laughs> okay. Well, um, the, there's something that goes on. Um, when I think about the divine feminine, I'm thinking about um, a principle as opposed to a gender or body parts. Correct. So I've actually known men that express the divine feminine. So I, I want that as a premise to be known by those who are listening, that I'm not um, talking necessarily about women. And women seem to have a direct access to this, where men in our society typically um, are cautioned away from this. So it's easy to see it in women, I would say. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a good. It's actually a really good point. In fact, I, I would even say that there's times a person could be one day rooted more in the divine feminine and then the next day rooted in the divine masculine. Like in the individual, I think it could ebb and flow. Yes, and, and um, the, the, the well-balanced person, I, I think, has the ability to, to perhaps um, mine for that in themselves, to nurture both, 
or, or surround themselves with people who help balance that. So if I have an overdose, let's say, of feminine energy or an overdose of masculine energy, and I haven't found a way or desire to, to mine or tap its opposite within me, I want to make sure I'm around people who reflect, who reflect that, um, that balance. Right. So it reminds uh, me of a book. Um, I, I might butcher his name, but I think it's Sebastian Junger. And he wrote a book called Tribe. It's okay. a very easy book to read, actually, and and really interesting. But he had told a story about a mining group of a group of men who mine, and they were trapped. So the, the men were all trapped inside this little cave for a, a while, like days and days and days. I, want, I don't remember the days. Maybe it was a couple weeks. But he went through the different ebbs and flows of the masculine and feminine within the group of men. So initially, the masculine personalities within the group stepped forward and tried to solve the issue at hand. Like, can we move these rocks? Yep. Can we get this out of the way? Yep. And then they became depleted, and the other men started to step forward who were more emotionally inclined to support people emotionally. Yeah. And they were then rooted in the survival of, like, the days to come where there was, like, okay, there's obviously we have to wait for the rescuers. We can't get out from inside. We have to sit in this darkness for days. And so it was interesting to see how he put it, like, they each had really important roles. Like yeah. one was to try to get out logically and, and physically get out. And then there were men who took on what would be said the more feminine roles, but were so needed because people were losing their losing their mind yeah. in the darkness with no family worrying about stuff, you know? So I thought that highlights both the feminine and masculine and the idea that it's not just in a woman or a man necessarily. Great. And being that it's Women's History Month, um, I, I think your question was, you, you were asking me to name a person or persons? Yes. Um, that a phenomenal woman in your oh life. Oh my God, there are so <laughs> many. I'm surrounded by really powerful women. Um, the, I, I know very few women that are are not expressing being powerful. And, for example, you're one of them. The, the way you, um, the way you tackle being physical, sports, but you do so with such a feminine grace, um, the way you you struggle and triumph with motherhood, the, the way you relate to your husband and to the, the men that you encounter. Um, there's no question about your femininity, like none at all. Like you actually own it and you don't have anything to prove. So there's a softness about you that, that's quite nice to be around. Oh, thank you. And... And um, I didn't my, mean for this question just to yeah, be like I know. a compliment. But I've, my, I want to mention my mom in particular uh, because my, my mother was an extraordinary, ordinary human being. Like she was really ordinary. But she was extraordinary in her ordinariness. Like somehow she, she was playing with a few profound spiritual truths and maybe she didn't even know she was doing it. That's what makes her so extraordinary. 
like, like um, I knew as a kid growing up, I knew that I was wanted. And I didn't even know that I knew this until I became like 30, 40, or even 50 years old. And I watched so many folks who have the scars of having the experience of being told they were not wanted, being told they were an accident, or, you know, any of those things that parents probably say without even knowing how that would be received or what would happen, what the fallout would be. So um, I, I was, I grew up pretty, pretty peaceful. Like I had a really peaceful, amazing childhood. It was peaceful mostly because I didn't have the anxiety of, of wondering if I was a mistake, an error, or in the way, you know? And that's pretty amazing to me. And do you, do you, um, tell, do you tell yourself, it's like your mother is who made you feel that way the most? Like she is the one who instilled that belief in you? No, but like, I, it doesn't even occur to me until someone asks the question, like you ask the question and I, I have to reflect on purpose and go, oh, I seem to have a, a noticeable absence of upset about my childhood. I have a, like a noticeable absence of there's something wrong here mm -hmm. in my childhood. And, and I could probably attribute that to, to um, that, uh, the experience that even when my mother was furious at me, um, I, I, I just knew that she was mad at what I was up to or what I was doing, and she was not mad at me. Right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think that's extraordinary. Yeah. And I've seen many women do that with other people, especially in the spiritual community. I see that a lot with people who are on the spiritual path, the ability to be compassionate and generous, and at the same time, to be really strong, like, like to be really clear, even while they're telling you no, like, no, you can't do that, but to have the experience of no, married with, um, like, I love you anyway. Right. Have we had this conversation before? I don't, I think you've referenced it before, perhaps. But um, I do think it's interesting when you say somebody can be feminine and strong. Because a lot of times there's this notion that they don't go together. Like yeah. you're weak and soft and, and the strength comes from a different no a knowingness of love. And that, you know, you're rooted in such strong ground, but you're still expressing in this divine feminine of acceptance and love, which sounds like what your mom was doing. Like... She never made you feel like she didn't love David. She just didn't love what you were doing. Exactly. And I think I remember one time in, um, you told me, I don't know what we were talking about, maybe bullying or something where you said you always felt like you belonged at home. So you always felt safe at home. Like yes. you went, you know, whatever was troubling you on the outside didn't matter as much because, you know, you had this strong place to come home to which is probably rooted in your mother's divine feminine power probably. which is kind of amazing probably i often think right now i'm noticing a pullback of the feminine not just with like the me too movement and everything but this idea of love and understanding and connection um you know i think it's kind of pulling into society a little bit more which is good i think because we've been pulled in the masculine way for so long with with trying to 
become better as a society, more cultured, more civilized, let's get to the moon, let's do all these things with science and math, which is great. They all serve a great purpose. But we've become, like, now we need to go back a little bit and root ourselves back in in nature and back in, like, our source. Yeah. And I think that's where women kind of, not women, but the feminine role, like we said, can be man too. Men too has a purpose now. And I think it's it's interesting to watch. Are you seeing that or is it just my imagination? Um, I actually am seeing that uh, softness. And I also think that it's possible that, that we can stop that from happening if we get insulted by people's expression of it. Right. So I, one of the things that um, inspired me about Hong Kong, one of the countless things, was the, the way in which their subway system works. Like millions of people go through their subways every day. And there are recordings that happen, like um, broadcasts, that happen every few seconds that say, Please mind your children and help the elderly. So I, I recall walk, walking onto a, a train. The, the doors had opened and a crowd of people left. And so I was part of a crowd that got onto the train. And there were plenty of empty seats. But even though there were plenty of empty seats, when Carmen, Mauricio's mother, silver-haired, walked onto that train, every person stood up. To give her the seat, even though there are plenty of seats for her. So the culture, just uh, an elderly person came on and everyone in the culture is wired to respect and help the elderly. Mm. So it wasn't an insult to Carmen. It was almost um, like a... Reverence. A, or it was yeah. totally, that's the word, reverence. So I, I know some men in the United States who see that open the, opening the door for women or, or um, letting them go first or or taking care of women as an act of reverence. But I also see that some women find that offensive because they think that they're not being given equal treatment. They're being treated like a, like a woman. Right. And I don't know what to do about that. I'm just watching. I don't have any, I don't have any solutions because I don't even know what the challenge is. But I, I suspect that there might be something in our desire to nurture the feminine that also stops people from celebrating the feminine because we think it's offensive yeah there is something there and I don't it's funny even when you start talking about it if I'm being really honest with my feelings Uh it's almost like like I don't even want to speak what I feel because it's going to rub somebody the wrong way it scares me to talk about it you know I mean my gut is like we almost have become a little too politically correct. Like if the if if the source of the person opening the door is just respect, you know, like I open the door for men. I open the door for a woman with a stroller. I open doors all the time for anybody. I just, you know, do that. I just think we maybe are going a little too far, like you said, and then we're going to get this polarizing pushback, which I'm already seeing a little bit of is like, look, you know, they're going too far and this and that. And it's really should be a mixture of everything, you know, like seeing the beauty in both sides. Um, Hopefully we'll get there. The pendulum seems to swing one way really far and then we kind of go back the other way and then we kind of go a little less. So maybe, maybe we'll see it. But um, I think in my mind for um, the survival of our planet, 
I don't care about politics. We need the feminine to come back, the divine feminine. We can't, we're not going to, we're not going to last without it. See how much feedback we get on that comment. I concur. <laughs> so we had some people who had written to us on uh, social media this week. Yes. Um, so one we of could, them was Susan. Well, Susan, we, I think we kind of answered your question, Susan. We kind of went off on some other stuff. Um, Kimberly, she had a really good one, which I feel like all of these could be podcasts, like full podcasts, yeah. but we'll mention them. So she wanted to know about adult-sized bullies, you know, for example, at work and how to navigate them. So I think we could all relate to maybe wow. having people at work that are a little harder. How do you, how do how do you relate to adult-sized bullies? Yeah, I'm trying to even think about when I've had them. I mean, I don't know if I've had anyone that was truly a bully or more of somebody I just didn't jive with on like a personality level. Like you guys just didn't get along. Yeah. Like you rubbed each other the wrong way. And I just kind of tried to avoid them the best I could or um, be as straightforward. I think I would have trouble if it was a real bully, though, that was, like, cutting at me. But in, like Amer- in American business, wouldn't you take that to HR? Yeah, I guess you would if it was really an intense bullying, right? I would. Yeah. I think I would. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's a tough one. I'd have to really think about that. I might want to ask. I might want to ask her more about um, paint, paint a scenario for me. That's what I would ask. I right to get that. a little more detail and see what you're really talking about. Because yeah, if it's something that's just unhealthy, you need to get out of there. If it's just a personality trait you just don't really connect with, you know, you got to learn to work with people. But as long as maybe <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I, I, I want to. I would like to ask. I would like to ask her more. Tell me more. Yeah. Let's come back. I to often that also find humor in people I don't quite jive with. Um, there's a few people that come to my mind, and I'm thinking about them now. <laughs> and I just found a way to be amused by them, like in, that helped. But uh, okay. Um, Barbara says, "When was the moment you knew God had a plan and you trusted it?" You take that one. <laughs> um, well, when you had me speak here, I did like a five-minute talk. And um, I had a moment when I was like five, and I just knew God had my back. I don't know. It was the weirdest thing. There was nothing spectacular about it. I was just looking at my Smurfette shoes in the sun, and it was just a feeling that doesn't have words to describe it. And I think since then I've always been able to... Put trust in it. Put trust in that power as uh, something that won't let me fall completely. Mm. She wants to know, when did I know God had a plan? Yeah. I. When did you know you wanted to be a preacher? Oh. I always felt like that would be a calling that you would hear God <laughs> say. It always makes me laugh when you say preacher because there are people who listen to this and they're like, they're atheists or agnostics. And the irony is they, they, the God they don't believe in, I probably don't believe in either. Uh, I knew, I knew back in 1987 is when it was, and it was actually a moment. It was a a, a moment where everything came together, like the the classes I was in at university, the what I was doing in um, the television industry in Hollywood, um, having been raised 
the way I was raised, like everything, it all came together in one one blinding flash. Did it feel like God talking? Like no, it was just a moment of such clarity. Uh, it, it wasn't even a thought. It was that's what's going to happen. Hmm. Okay, like like that is what's going to happen. And were you bar- going to a, like? Were you doing science of mind at the time? Oh, do you want me to tell that story? Well, so when you describe it, here's what I'm picturing. Here's David in college taking classes. He's also an, an actor. And then all of a sudden it clicked and he wanted to be a preacher. Oh. And I'm kind of like, well, what happened? How did that all like actually I was, gel? I was, <laughs> I was working at Albertson Supermarket in Los Angeles County in Downey, California. I was working the graveyard shift from midnight to 6 a.m. I was a supermarket checker. And I was um, just beginning uh, getting into the television industry. And what I was doing at that stage was I was just doing uh, extra work on soap operas. And I was going to Albertsons. Uh, Albertsons was paying for my schooling, which was at that time at Cal State Long Beach and Santa Monica College. And my, my majors were business administration and psychology. And while working at Albertsons, think about this, 1987, you're not even old enough to know what 87 was, but in 1987, there weren't 24-hour anything. There, there were no cell phones, there, were no, uh, there was no internet. So um, bars would close at 2 a.m., and there was one place open in Downey, and that was Albertsons, where I worked. So I became kind of like a bartender in the middle of the night. People who left the bar... Uh, if they had nowhere to go, they would come to Albertsons. Now, one woman in particular, her name was Janet. And Janet um, was not, she was not a, 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 a barfly. She was actually a mother of a man who was diagnosed with HIV. Mm-hmm. And she was a Mormon. And she, she had a, an adult son named Greg. And Greg being diagnosed, which in 1987 meant Greg was going to die. Yeah. He was going to die. And so Janet was... Um, sleepless. She couldn't sleep. She didn't know what to do. And so she started talking to me. Every night she would come in and ask me, because clearly I was gay. And she was wondering um, uh, how I reconciled that with God. And, and So she just came up and like asked you all this? No. I don't remember exactly that. But um, through through weeks and months of chatting... It, okay, so it built yeah, up. Okay, it builds you kind of got to know I'm it. I'm fast-forwarding. Okay. And so she started... At that stage, I would have called myself an atheist, but I would have been afraid that I might be wrong and I was going to go to hell. So I, I settled for agnostic. Mm. It was hard for me to to be okay with the, ch- the, the church of my, my origin because they taught that being gay was... Yeah, I was going to hell. So that made no sense to me. Right, that, yeah. <laughs> that God would create me this way and then sadistically forbid me from taking yeah. action on it. That That was irrational. So... Um, Janet asked me to join her, um, to, she was looking for alternative solutions. So I, through a series of months and months and months, I would go with her when I get off work, we'd go to like Shirley MacLaine workshops. And I remember taking Est with her and we would do, um, we're looking at crystals and tarot cards and past life regressions and whole life readings and any alternative to try to find, um, a miracle for Greg. And... Um, she invited me to go with her to the Church of Reli- Church of Religious Science, and I went. 
you know, I went for Janet. But sitting there in that church on that day, Dr. Peggy Bassett was speaking, and that's when I went, that's what I'm going to do. So I went there to help Janet, I thought. I went there to just to hang out with her and uh, got my calling. So I just started, I started on that day. I just signed up for classes and, and then seven years later I was uh, licensed. Wow. I love that story. Oh my gosh. That gives me like the chills in so many ways because it was like Janet was a divine intervention. Totally. Now, let me tell you this. Janet said, you're going to become a minister. I went, no, I'm not. So I got my calling in the voice of Janet. Right. And, and in a weird way, her son was a catalyst for that. Totally. And like his life, which seemed at the time to have been gone, like a lost, his purpose might not have been realized because he was going to die of AIDS, right? Probably yeah. at a young age, I would assume. Yes. Um, I would imagine as a mom going through all these feelings of like, he's never going to live his life. He's never going to have a purpose like he's never gonna become what he could become and in a weird way he through her catalyzed was a catalyst for you who has touched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and bettered their lives like without greg you might not be here and so maybe that was his purpose even though at the time you you know you always like want to struggle for purpose in tragedy and Oftentimes, you can't see God's divine purpose, but like in a weird way, even though it's so tragic, it produced something so beautiful in you. So that takes us to (laughs) Barbara's, how did I know God had a plan? I would like to address that. I don't necessarily believe that God had a plan for me. Like, I I don't believe in that God. I do believe, though, that life is intimately aware of what I'm hungering to be or do because my hungering is also life. And I believe more like a GPS. Um, we, we, uh, our desire is the destination and life helps us to get there. Like a GPS gets us the fastest, easiest route. But I don't necessarily believe that God thought I should be a minister at a new faith, a, 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 a new age, new thought organization. I, I don't know if I really believe that. Right. I see what you mean. But I, I do definitely believe that um, life or God is what got me here, but it got me here based upon my compulsions to follow this, this calling. Right. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I get it. How are we on time, by the way? We're, we're running a little long, but I'm interested. This last part of the podcast is fascinating to me. Um, and real quick, because we're on this topic, and the way you described yourself right before you met Janet yeah. is a lot like my friend's husband, Chanika, who I was telling you about from Canada. Yeah. And she is um, she would fit right in in this church. Like She's a Buddhist, but also into Reiki, into crystals, into all these new... Ways. But you call it a church. How she could, how could she fit in in a place well, called a she, church? Well, because she loves cathedrals. She loves mm. everything spiritual, right? She's just this really connected person to energy. Um, she's just all about that. And she has a daughter, and she really wants to raise her daughter with a spiritual foundation. But her husband is like you before he met Janet. Grew up, I think, in some religion 
that had a lot of rules, yeah. a lot of stipulations about who's correct and who's not. Right. And so now any sort of spirituality he connects with religion. And so she's finding it a struggle to raise her child in a way that supports spirituality while he is like so anti it, but wondering how she can maybe forge the two. Like manipulate him can into a green. Can we find him a Janet? Is I guess what uh. <laughs> I mean yeah, I don't know. That's By the way, do you know that's not that's not un- uncommon for the man? Typically, the males don't show up in a spiritual community until they have a crisis, um, uh, a life change, like they lose a job, they lose a mate, they lose um, some some uh, a limb, they lose their health, <laughs> so. or until they retire. Typically, typically that doesn't happen. Well, then we almost go full circle back to the divine feminine masculine, exactly, right? Because Cause they're more typically lo- it is the female that brings the sense of connection and community and the tribe. Mm-hmm to our society and males typically are busy trying to figure out how to keep them safe or fed or cared for and neither could live without the other right they are both required and typically males don't don't um, acquiesce to their spiritual nature until they start having an awareness of mortality typically right but another thing might be um, your friend you may want to have her start Googling things like spiritual, not religious. She may find things that her husband would find agreeable in spirituality without telling him that that's what she's doing. Like sneak it in a little yeah, bit? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's kind of... Sneak it in. You that's, were going to a, that's kind of what a mindful... I, I feel like mindfulness is kind of the new sneaky you know, it's way true. of spirituality. <laughs> mindful, mindfulness and compassion are synonyms for... Um, meditation or spirituality and love there you go chanaka just take him to like a mindfulness, mindfulness. camp don't Being tell mindfulness <laughs> so i have a friend named kurt and kurt kurt had uh, hypertension he had he had a heart condition and his doctor put him on med- meditation but and, and kurt was a self-avowed atheist but he started doing meditation because he didn't want to die of a heart attack and he's having all kinds of revelations based upon what's occurring from being mindful. Mm. And when Kurt starts talking about mindfulness, he's talking about the kind of thing that I do every day. Right. So we're talking about the same thing. So there. There. Should we stop it there for now? I think so. Um, what's calling you today? Wow. That's how we're going to end, right? What's <laughs> calling you today? What's calling me is um, I'm having dinner tonight with friends, and I'm very, very happy to... Uh, to have had this time to warm me up for that. What's calling you today? Mm. Well, my husband's gone, so I've got the kids, and I am a little bit selfishly looking forward to when they go to bed and I have the whole bed to myself. Oh, your husband's gone. <laughs> Meaning? So he's gone, and I'm, I, was I, on mi- a trip. I miss him, you know, but tri- there is a sneaky part of you that's like, really, you can just. I can eat cookies in the I bed. I totally get it. You know, I can watch some girly romantic movie if I want. I don't know. You know. You could you can you be a mouth what do they call it? A mouth breather? You can be a, you can literally yeah. lay there with your mouth open and snore. I could fart. Cuz girls never <laughs> fart. I don't fart in front of my husband. I try my best not to, but you know, but you know when when you're alone, just let it all out. <laughs> 
So your your friend whose husband is an atheist, he may want to listen to this. There you go. This is what the reality a, of spirituality. We'll end it on a real high note. Have a great week, Weren't everyone. Weren't you saying I was really feminine, too? Yeah, you, I did say that. I take it back. <laughs> I'm looking forward to episode seven. Yes. Thank you for joining us on episode six. Bye. Bye.